Welcome to Charisma Boost, Dumpstack Charisma's podcast, where we discuss all things tabletop, RPG, and Dungeons and & Dragons. A quick note before we get started, each of these episodes are pulled directly from our Twitch streams, so you may hear some random chimes from our alerts. If you'd like to watch this or any of our other campaigns live, you can do so on twitch.tv slash dumpstackcharisma. Hello! Hello. Welcome to Charisma Boosts, our roundtable-style talk show where we talk about all things tabletop RPG. We're talking D&D, Pathfinder, Edge of the Empire, uh, all kinds of crap. Uh, We're going to be asking some of your questions that you've uh, sent to us via social media, and uh, we're going to be hashing it out. Uh, So we got a couple of great uh, channels, shows that we do here uh, that I'd like to talk about first. Uh, specifically tomorrow, we have The Awakening. It's our D&D 5e stream. It's going to be starting at 5.30 Pacific. Uh, Robert's the DM of that one. He couldn't make it tonight. Uh, Monday Night Football game. We're all a little jealous. Mm. Not going to lie. I'd rather be here with you. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, next Monday, we have Hunt for the Ripper. That's our Star Wars Fantasy Flight uh, stream. Paul is the DM of that one. Fantastic. Check it out. And then uh, that Tuesday... We have the premiere of Hellscape. That's our new Pathfinder stream. Really excited. It's going to be great. Promise. Mm-hmm. We'll also be starting to talk <laughs> about that over the week, yeah. Yeah, we got, uh, we got uh, art to show off now. Oh, man, it's Ooh. the best. Thank you, Olga. My name is Dylan. I'm uh, Dumpstack Charisma's social media lead. So if you're talking to Dumpstack Charisma anywhere else, you're probably talking to me. I play in all three of our campaigns. Three different systems. Uh, it's kind of a trip. Uh, Paul, is to my left here. Introduce yourself. That's me. <laughs> uh, as uh, Dylan already stated, I'm the D- the DM or the game master. I, I guess is a more appropriate term for either way. Um, Hunt for the Ripper, Star Wars Fantasy Flight RPG. Our group is a bunch of uh, sort of hard boiled mercenaries in uh, noir Star Wars world, uh, hunting down a serial killer. And in uh, The Awakening, which we'll be playing tomorrow, I am Lyle, the paladin who has a really complicated past now. <laughs> <laughs> more complicated by the day. Yeah. Sweet Lyle. I, I, in fact, every session it just gets more complicated. <laughs> and uh, apparently I have a wife and kids now that I forgot about. <laughs> it's the best. Yeah, yes. one does. I, All right. I owe back child support, I guess. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> You're elves, dude. That's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Bjorn. Uh, I go by Bjorn's Workshop on uh, all the social medias. I'm in two of the campaigns, and uh, I am just coming back from an extended hiatus. I was building armor for the TwitchCon cosplay contest, oh, and I am returning, hopefully triumphantly. We shall see. Uh, <laughs> more on that uh, starting tomorrow. Mm-hmm. We'll see what he's been doing with uh, Mike's former character's sister all these t- years, <laughs> this, these months, like, months. Yeah, weeks. It's, it's it's been good. Weeks. I can tell you Hard that much. To say. We've been busy. <laughs> Hi, I'm Nick. Um, I am a guest player in The Awakening. I play Sunathir, the Lizardfolk cleric. In Hunt for the Ripper, I play a Cuso assassin named Sonata. Not really an assassin, more of a sniper slash support character. Um, and I will also be in Hellscape. Um, none of us said anything about our experience with D&D this time around. That's because none of us are experienced. Okay. <laughs> um, we just I've pretend. Been, <laughs> I've, uh, I've experienced with a bunch of different systems, primarily uh, D&D editions, second newer, except fourth. Um, 
and Pathfinder, and then the uh, Edge of the Empires um, system. And I've been role-playing for about 18 years with tabletop experience closer to like 16. Show off. <laughs> I'm the old man. I'm allowed to show off. And then uh, we have one other person to introduce. We have uh, the man behind the mirror here. We have Josh. Uh, you want to give folks a wave? <laughs> you can't really see me, but he's I'm here. Right magically. here. He's not oh, just off frame, he's actually invisible. Yeah. yeah. It's true. <laughs> I only have hands. <laughs> what do I do with my hands? So we're going to jump right into our first uh, topic here. This came to us on Twitter from uh, Adventures in Aurelia. Uh, they're a D&D podcast uh, operating uh, nearby us, actually. Mm-hmm. We've uh, met with them uh, before and had a drink. Uh, they said they want to hear a hearty debate on DMPCs. Uh, what's good, what's bad, what should be done? I think Nick, one you want to start us off? Oh, yeah. Particularly passionate about yes, this. Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> I actually saw this when it was like, that's where we got to start. I got two examples. I'm, I, I want to go with this. Um, so the first one, um, I kind of want to talk about DMs kind of pushing an NPC on the party or cr- attempting to integrate an NPC into the party. Um, one of my first attempts to do this, because I'm traditionally not a huge fan of the DM NPC um, or what some players refer to as the babysitter. Um, the first time I attempted to do this with a party, I brought back a prior player's character. This was a player who... Oh, had, shit. Yeah, you didn't realize I was going with that one. Um, I brought back a character that had been a member of the party, but had kind of gone missing. The The player went away and wasn't able to play with us any longer. Um, Dan, if you're listening, I'm talking about your character. Um, so, <clears throat> Nico, right? Nico Crown. Nico yeah. Crown. So I reintroduced the character as kind of an emissary of one of my major NPCs to try and get the party to buy in quick to, oh yeah, our friend's cool with this person, we should totally go and meet her. And uh, that didn't work as two of my party members conspired to kill said NPC um, and then did so. Um you did, in fact, conspire. You literally did it in front of him while I was having him converse with someone else. I, I didn't. I didn't argue. <laughs> um, the flip side of this coin was is the unexpected NPC DM NPC that the players kind of create for you. This type of NPC I really like uh, because it's the players saying, "I want that guy to come with us," um, and. You can throw roadblocks in the way if it's not something you want to do, but for the most part, some of it can be really fun. Our example of this was an NPC named Rick. Um, The party had recently finished, uh, recently completed defending a city from a siege. Um, They had just annihilated the attacking army between them and the defensive efforts. That was really Um, satisfying, by the way. Yeah. Um, Complete with an impromptu cinnamon challenge to a man in a full plate mask. (laughs) A full plate helm. Uh, Yeah, not fun. Um, And then uh, they found one surviving member who I believe was wounded from the attack. And rather than outright kill him, decided to talk to him. Found out how he'd gotten conscripted, pretty much. And decided that they were going to heal him, buy him equipment, and he was going to adventure with them from now on because his story was worth going on. That man had a family. I'm sorry. Like, it just, 
<laughs> we couldn't just off the guy. It was it was great. Uh, this character persisted through months, if not years. He's still around. Uh, <laughs> like... And since since that particular world was being run by me, and it is a persistent world, yes, the character is still around. <laughs> um, those are the two examples of DM NPCs that I wanted to throw out there, both in style of how they're introduced and then how they interact with the party. Yes. Yeah. So, you're not a fan of them, but if they're handled correctly, they can be very entertaining. Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> what? How would you say is a bad way that a DM NPC could be introduced? A bad way to introduce a DM NPC? I- explain, explain as if nobody's played D&D before. Okay. And you, you, you mentioned the babysitter. What's, what's that about? So, the, the babysitter archetype of a DM NPC is... This guy's here to make sure you guys stay on task and stay focused on the mission. And that's really all he's good for. He, the, the DM will um, use them almost as a railroading tool, I think would be your worst outcome possible. It's going to be somebody that at the beginning of the quest, if you get it from, say, a, a king or a noble, this is a real, real tropey D, D&D start. Sorry. The king gives you a quest. And he says, you know, my faithful paladin or my faithful guard here is going to go with you on this quest to make sure that everything's completed, you know, to my standards kind of thing. Um, And then kind of that gets used as a railroading tool to keep the party on that focus with no deviation. Um, I don't have any exact examples of this because it's something that um, parties that I have been in... (laughs) have done a pretty good job of avoiding doing. Um, there are some DM NPCs that can do it kind of subtly. There's some DMs that can do it subtly with an NPC. And that's not that bad. It's the the hard line approach to it is what you really want to avoid if you're going to have a DM PC traveling with your group. I think uh, one of the best ways that you can do it um, as a DM, um, and not just with uh, DM NPCs sort of participating in the group uh, is sort of hide the purpose of why this NPC is even there in the first place. Because if the, if the party doesn't know why he's there, or they're there, I should say, um, they all they don't immediately attribute it to, uh, oh, here's the DM you know, sure. participating, you know, not being a DM, being a player again, but have the, the, the NPC serve a point or a purpose or something to that effect that the party benefits from, that they enjoy... Um, and uh, like most things as a DM, just look for a way that this can be some way to have fun with the group as opposed to putting a limitation, adding that no on top of the list and things like that. Yeah, it's a good point. I think that there's a lot to be said for trust between DMs and their groups. Mm -hmm. It's a collaborative storytelling exercise playing Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder tabletop games are about everybody working together to tell as cool and interesting of a story as you can. If you are a player and you feel like you're being kind of shepherded into this pen for the DM to get this plot point, it really sucks. It, it feels like you don't have that freedom of choice that tabletop gaming is really, really popular for. And as a DM, if you don't feel like you can trust your players to kind of handle this thing that you've invested so much time and care to craft, then, you know, there's there's a, a mismatch there that really needs to be discussed out of game and figured out. Once you get everybody on the same page and moving in the right direction, beautiful things can happen. And again, that's, that's how Rick happened when 
we found this guy and he was expecting us to off the guy because that was kind of our MO for that group was if they're not part of our group and they're not immediately useful to us, we murder them. Yay! Welcome to Tabletop. And <laughs> my, my party was murder hobos. It's true. It's, it's very hobos. true. But so, allowing things to organically deviate from where you might pigeonhole them otherwise is really, really, really helpful. And it can lead to a lot of really interesting, fun things. Yeah. I think one of the, the rules of thumb is, is if you have an NPC there with the party, it's there to benefit them. It's there to yep. help them. Uh, and, and it's usually um, sort of like a treat. It's If you treat it like um, they, you get an NPC to help you with this encounter, you know, like this is a particularly challenging encounter, that uh, is sort of like... Oh man, we're surrounded by orcs, but this uh, errant knight suddenly swoops in and, and helps us and says, "You know, good to see you uh, doing the good work out here. Uh, you know, do you need a hand? Are you all doing okay?" And, and then you know, moving on later in the plot, and just make it a temporary fun thing. Yeah, I think the longevity of a DMPC is is kind of one of the crucial things about it. If you're putting a character in there that you intend to be therefore the length of the campaign they really need to have a kind of purpose to them otherwise they're going to end up being either uh taking uh glory per se away from the pcs or just being a kind of Mm add-on to it um it's tough to have them there for a long period of time uh, without having some form of purpose for them hey who's carrying that thing we found oh oh, that's the 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 mmpc has that Mm-hmm. My encumbrance is any kind of like staff or things like that, and a lot of times a character will have, uh, say, leadership in Pathfinder, where you have um, compatriots or there's similar things in other systems. If you've got, uh, I don't know, like a, a squire or something like that, that's usually a good opportunity if you want to get uh, more involved in the game as a DM. I think it uh, would be a fun thing to do is have a non-combat uh, DM NPC, someone who can maybe. Maybe they're a witch and they can cast supportive spells for the group to kind of help them on their journey as opposed to like directly influence the encounters. Or um, perhaps an alchemist who uh, can brew potions every once in a while for the group. and and Or a traveling salesman who is like, I'm not here to uh, complete your quest for you, but in <laughs> case you needed anything, I'm right over here, you know, type of thing. And, uh, That's actually a really interesting idea. Come up with this quirky ways if you really want to have more... Because I think the, the, the main purpose of a DM, NPC, is to give your party additional people to bounce off of, to roleplay off of. Because if you're out in the middle of the woods, you don't get to roleplay with anybody but yourselves, which, you know, can be a lot of fun. But sometimes it's nice to have <laughs> some random, you know, Joe Schmo that your party maybe wants to get to know better before going to bed for the night. Or that can do fun things and, and help, you know. That's actually a really good point, too, with having more people to bounce RP off of. Mm-hmm. A DM NPC is a lot more helpful in a smaller group and a lot more of yeah. a hindrance in a larger group. Agreed. Yeah. So that's one thing to keep in mind also if you're looking at introducing or starting a campaign with a DM NPC. Look at how many players you already have. If you're 5 plus, really think about that DM NPC and make sure that it's going to add and not detract 
from the role-playing time that your players are going to get. Sure. I've got one more final point on this real quick. Um, another useful thing for DM NPCs is if you're always if you're ever a player short or a couple players short, sometimes it's nice if the yep. party has the the feeling that they can walk up to an NPC that's regular or part regularly a part of a story and say, "Hey, so and so had to quickly run back to their guild to go do a thing. Is there any way that you could, you know, for a cut of the treasure, come with us or something like that?" And that way, the encounter doesn't have to to stop and the game doesn't have to get dragged on or massively edited and things like that yeah. so it can be a tool again to the benefit of the party on a meta level not having to skip a portion of com- uh, uh, content just because exactly. the party's diminished uh, Keys had a good comment in here that I wanted to address uh, he said I don't like uh, DM PCs because I feel like it protects the party from the game too much I found that DMs overpower them and I feel like it hurts the story in most cases is a really good point because if you are a DM and you're putting a, a NPC of yours uh, into the party for some down-the-road thing, you're not going to want that person to die uh, or fall behind or whatever. And it can lead you to either overpower them because you want them to be cool or to protect them in an uh, uh, over-exuberant way uh, because you need them later on. So if you're putting a character in the game... I personally would highly advise that you be ready for that person to uh, meet their fate, so to speak. <laughs> Survive or not. <laughs> right. Well, and, and as Keys also says, um, protecting an NPC is very cool. That's a great opportunity if you're down a player. You can create you know, skirmishes and that kind of stuff where there's a traveling salesman or traveling alchemist or whatever that becomes kind of a side quest of protect this person, save them from the wolves or ogres or whatever. Uh, and then that person may, if they are able to save them, uh, become a recurring thing. They may meet them down the line. They may have some sort of a, a boon from that favor. Uh, there's ways that you can, if you've got something that is intended to just be kind of a, a quick injection of, of content, then you can turn that into something that becomes kind of a callback thing that really adds to the depth and flavor of the world. I think it's a it's a good idea to to really think about what your what your um, the silhouette of what you're thinking about when it comes to a DM NPC. Yeah. Like, what is it that you define as a DM NPC? Is it a character with character levels that's you know fighting in inside fights with the party? Is it an NPC that the that is regularly in the story and has constant interaction with the party? Because, um, like, Hunt for the Ripper, to bring that up, is that there is, like, a recurring cast of people that the party keeps going back to this one establishment, and they're always talking to them and interacting with them and things like that. Does that make them a DM NPC? Well, that's really up to your interpretation, so. So, uh, I think we covered that one pretty well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to move oh, yeah. on to a uh, question posed by Sandragon. He said, uh, where do you start uh, when creating a campaign, storyline, world building, NPCs, something else? What works best? I would like to start with this one. Jump on in, Paul. Um, so I think in in order of operation that you should really consider, an, um, uh, the first thing to consider is that whenever you're building a world, build it in layers. Um, because those And you don't have to establish all of those layers up front. Sometimes just adventuring and giving yourself the opportunity to grow within your own story is a really helpful thing to do. But when I'm building a world, the first thing I like to decide is what level of magic is is on average present in the world. Because that can influence 
major cultural development, animals in the world, things that people have to live with on a day-to-day basis. And that can really shape that for you. And by kind of putting in that, that frame of reference in first and then building down from that is the way that I do that. The second thing is what major culture is at least the story, the story going to be starting in? Kind of like if it's going to be based off of something, great. Um, if it's going to be steampunk, if that's what you're going for, if you're going for like a gothic, you know, horror, you know, like start taking the broader subjects first and then work your way down to, you know, I think this is going to be um, a, a gothic horror story uh, and the setting is going to be on an ocean world, you know, type things and like build yourself down to that point. Um, high magic, you know, and, and what does that mean if you're, if you're gothic horror high magic and an ocean world you the world almost starts to build itself for you because high magic horror probably means that there's leviathans under the water or you know horrors that people have to deal with on a day-to-day basis perhaps the world is bleak and everyone's unhappy and, and things like that it just starts to establish at that point it's kind of like the broader pieces of the setting inform you as to what the details mm-hmm. uh, should be if they make sense exactly uh, for my part, I haven't done a ton of DMing, but where I like to start when I'm starting a campaign is to think about the tone uh, of the campaign and the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, so if I'm thinking horror, or if I'm thinking adventure, or if I'm thinking comedy, that usually tells me what kind of elements I want to have in it. Um, and that can also inform quite a bit on the uh, setting as well. Uh, so if I'm doing a horror campaign, uh, chances are we're not going to have... Uh, brightly lit city with streamers and colors everywhere and everyone's dancing around all happy whereas if we're going to have a a comedy kind of fun light-hearted adventure chances are we're not going to be rolling through graveyards and stuff like that Uh, so that's usually where I start and from then I kind of move into uh, who are the major players and Mm -hmm. that can be either uh, characters or places and so if I'm thinking who the major bad guy is going to be, who the major allies are going to be, what the what the twist is going to be, or so to speak, that mm-hmm. uh, usually sets me some almost checkpoints along the uh, the way for me to build upon. Uh, and one of the things that you you touched on that I kind of want to elaborate is that oftentimes the setting that you're going for can reflect in the smallest of details um, because parties or players will sort of subconsciously latch onto details. Um, for example, if you're going off of like a horror story to continue that theme, um, you're like you said, you're probably not going to be uh, walking through brightly lit places with happiness and dancing and things like that. So like, let's say you have to walk through a copse of trees, like knowing that it's a horror, you're going to think they're gnarled, you know, you're going to describe them as, as leafless and maybe perhaps lifeless, you know, uh, misty, things like that. And, and that, that taking that subject and then then taking even mundane objects and being like, how would this represent itself best in a horror setting would then color everything for you. Walking across a, um, a, a dock, well, if it's in a horror, you know, it's going to be uh, aged wood, it's going to wheeze and sigh and crack as you're walking across it, give parties that sort of like, oh gosh, we have to be prepared, like what if this dock gives out underneath us, you know, like, like giving people fear in a horror campaign, perhaps even completely removed from the subject in hand. Yeah, I have to absolutely agree that description, whatever you choose to build for your world, um, how you describe that is really what's going to determine the 
amount of depth that you get out of the world. And this is something that is true of both uh, DMs and players, that if you're looking for an immersive game, encouraging everybody to be as descriptive as possible is uh, absolutely vital. Because as soon as, soon as somebody says, I roll this, I hit, move on, then that immersion is broken. Uh, so, again, whether it's horror, whether it's a you know, beautiful green forest of the, the elves or uh, secretive dwarves in the middle of, of, of mountains, uh, getting into some of the really nitty-gritty details, but being selective about picking a few flavor things to add to the content uh, is really going to give you the most bang for your buck as far as getting the feel of whatever it is that you're building. Do you want anything to this, Nick? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Feel free. Uh, I have a couple of things that I want to add to it. Um, I shouldn't have asked. I people. think that they very. <laughs> <laughs> I think that a lot of the the places where I would start have been very well covered. The tone, the feel, the large aspects. Um, to me, what's most important when you're designing a world um, is to start there, get the big aspects. But I prefer to spend most of my time. In the, in the next step in um, culture, varying cultures within a world. Um, for example, in my exile campaign, we had an entire culture um, around uh, a warrior aspect where it was, you know, the strong people are all at the top. The strong are, on, are at the top. They lead the military. They lead the city. They further the society. Um, but in a high magic world, this society completely frowned upon resurrection. And this world is in, was incredibly high magic, but this society shuns the idea that once you die in battle, you can return. Because there is no more glorious way to go than in battle. Uh, yeah, I mean... The, the cultures to it, to me, are the most important pieces because those are the things that give one city a different feel from another. Um, you can have a city based entirely around a, a slave trade, which we had, and the party um, upended that economy in a month. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. They I think it was three. Three months. Yeah. They, they upended that economy and replaced it with other things because they had a super genius. We made them agrarian. <laughs> they did. <laughs> um, but... The, the cultures that you put into the cities will help the players not only remember the location, but remember some of the role play that happened there. Remember some of the, of the society and maybe bring some of that with them to the next city they visit. It's also really easy as a player to put your foot in your mouth when you move from one culture to another. When you spend you know, two months of content of you know, playing in one city and then you move to a city that's completely different having traveled for a great great while you're used to the one thing so you say a thing and then they're like that doesn't fly here bro you can't say those things in public and we're like what be a good person so it it it, it can really add to the to the depth of role play as well yeah, and on the flip side of that, what uh, what Paul just said, be a good He's person. At all we, we recently came across a society where their law is literally to be a good person. I call it moralistic anarchy. That is that is their entire society. Quite honestly, it's almost the... What is the word? It's the epitome of a chaotic good society. Mm. Be good. 
I don't care what else you do, but be good. Mm -hmm. Or we will ostracize you from our society or potentially just kill you. (laughs) This is what will happen. Be good or we will do bad. (laughs) You will be good or we will make society good again by removing you. Right. The, the idea of setting a culture is sort of like setting the tone, but kind of in a micro scale, where yes. you can set individual tones for each yeah. of the cities you go to or each of the lands you go to. You could still maintain this concept of horror or this concept of high adventure or whatever, but you, could, you can put a shader on it when you go to, say, a town that's militaristic or you go to a town that's sort of this uh, slave trade... Um, uh, we're the royal family, everyone else is beneath us. Or if you're not of this race, you're not of, of you know, you don't have any rights or anything like that. And so you can you can sort of uh, mix them like two colors and be like, well, it's horror, but what if it's horror in, um, in anarchy or something like that? Or it's horror in, in uh, sort of like a, a high theocracy, like how can that go wrong type of thing? Yeah, <laughs> it can go pretty wrong. Yeah, so, so uh, <laughs> I think I think it's a it's a it's a good it's a good mesh there between overall story theme and then uh, what individual environments do you want to put the people through, and that can be wilderness or city wise. So, uh, Purple Dragon, did you have something more? I actually just wanted to point to what Purple Dragon and them are talking about in chat about the deck of many things. I was about to get to that. (laughs) Uh, Purple Dragon says, do you think it would be cool to make a legit deck of many things with cool art uh, over using a card deck? So Um, That sounds amazing. It sounds great. Let's talk about it. I do have one of these. They're tarot card design. They're about yay big. I was going to say, are they like over there? No, they're they're somewhere with my D and D supplies. I don't think they mm. ever came out of unpacking after moves. They're in my old backpack. Gotcha. Um, I do the have them Eldritch somewhere. I will have to get them to the Dylan the so we can get some pictures out of them. Absolutely, um, I will definitely find those and get them to uh, our social media expert here so we can get some pictures out of them. Um, they are a lot of fun. They're However. Really cool. Be very careful with that type of artifact, giving your players a draw. Uh, we have had some campaigns start with a couple of our DMs where they have gone, hey, you know what? You have the option, not the requirement, but the option to draw up to one card from the deck of many things on character creation. Always. And the problem with this <laughs> is oh, that, look, first of wish. all, if, if, you're, if your DM gives you this option and you don't take it, I will find you. <laughs> Second of all, if you draw death, suck it up and deal. That's um, the best time to draw death. Yeah. 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 Then you're, now, not, you're, you're way less almost... attached. I guess I'm not playing this one. Yeah. No, 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 Good no. thing I hadn't finished no. yet. The death card's even better because you don't just die. It comes hunting for you. Guess what, party? Time to run. <laughs> um, hey time guys, to push that guy and then keep going this way. I knew we were going to go on a high adventure and we were going to defeat that uh, <laughs> that orc tribe that's been pillaging the land. Um, there's also a Tarask after me, so just but, thought you should know before we departed. Um, so things like that. The deck of many things is an incredibly powerful artifact. There's a reason it's an artifact. There's absolutely yeah. a reason it's an artifact. Um, I don't think it was in three five. Um, I, I know remember. it wasn't in second. It was just a magic item. It was a greater magic item. Yeah, second. Um, was, bop, bop, bop. Second was second. special. <laughs> um, 
But as far as it goes, <laughs> it can heavily imbalance a game, as with any artifact. So I would I would say exercise caution. But if you're gonna go with it, and you have the ability to get a hold of a deck of cards, that go has hard. Pictures, do it. <laughs> Absolutely do it. Oh. They're beautiful. I think that, as with many of these kinds of polarizing things, um, the first thing when using a deck of many things or considering using it is to look at your players and look at your game and ask yourself if it's going to be a benefit or a drawback. Uh, for some players, they like when their character does well and they handle it poorly when their character doesn't do well. And if that's the case, then you can be a real dicey situation if they draw something nasty. Yeah. Uh, if you have players that really like the chaotic, improv kind of uh, nature of D&D, then it could be a great boon. Because even if they get something ridiculous or terrible, they'll roll with it and, and have a ton of fun with it. And uh, also for the tone of your game, if you're playing something that's really serious and kind of uh, you want things to run along the story and everything like that, it can really throw a wrench into things if something crazy happens, but... Um, if it's going to fit in your campaign, it could be a, a hugely fun thing. And I am always, always a fan of props. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. Props make everything better. It's yep. so much fun. Agreed. Uh, so if you're considering using a deck of many things and you have the option to get one, it's cool, it's got art, and it's all kinds of nice stuff, that sounds great to me. Sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to have to go find this thing now. Yeah, you will. Yep. <laughs> Do it. I shouldn't have said anything. I'm glad I did because it'll help me find it so uh, Greg and I were talking earlier Bjorn and I were talking earlier (laughs) Uh, and we we were talking about the use of meta in uh, D&D and I thought that that would be a great topic Uh, so we're going to go into that Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you use meta how much meta is good when is meta bad and uh, who wants to start I'll start if neither of y'all wants to hit it all right, so meta in games is important. It's absolutely important. It is, I would say vital. I was going to say, it is one of the most vital things that you will have at the table. Simultaneously, it is one of the worst things that can happen at your table. Um, here's why it can be both. Um, the meta that you want is the meta of the party staying together. The players wanting to adventure with one another despite potential in-character conflicts. Um, Some of this you can see in uh, The Awakening, when we first found out what Lyle is, um, and Sunathir's entire belief system uh, is basically on display right there. It's like, okay, well... For context, Lyle (laughs) is an ASMR paladin who has amnesia, who found out that he's actually an angel who's been resurrected through a necromantic ritual, putting him in a mortal body. So he is being sustained by necromantic energies, which is being covered up by a holy blessing. We found this out. The cleric to the god of death. Not happy. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Sunathir's belief system is that undead is abomination. It must be wiped out. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can play this out. Um, the way we went with it was conflicty. <laughs> there's there's a lot of conflict there between the two characters. There was uh, heated discussion and a promise of swift death to him should his character lose his mind. Um, as Sunathir essentially identified the fact that since he was still sentient and still had part of what he was, that maybe it wasn't quite the same. Now... If this was an NPC, 
and not a player, the odds of Sunithir going through the same steps? Probably not. I'm probably going to advocate to kill the guy. Because he is literally everything that should not exist. Um, but that's the type of meta that you want. The meta for a player to say, you know what? I need to look at this from a different angle. I need to be able to evaluate this from a different way and quickly adjust to the game's benefit because the story that the party is putting together is more important than what my one character's backstory is or what my one character's RP is. And that's the meta that you want. The meta that you don't want is the out-of-character knowledge or, okay, well, <laughs> we're going to fight uh, this creature. We're going to fight a blue dragon. Okay, everybody make your knowledge rolls on what a blue dragon is. And everybody um, does it, and they all fail. Okay? But I just happen to have bought this potion of resist electricity. This is probably going to be pretty useful at this point, right? <laughs> like, I mean, there's no way to know for sure. But. Yeah. It, even, you know, <laughs> hey, I rolled a natural one on my on my knowledge check, and blue dragons breathe acid. Let me go ahead and drink this potion of uh, electrical resist, because... You. you know, that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. That type of meta is the meta you want away from your table. <laughs> the the meta of out-of-character knowledge coming in character. This can have a couple of different things. It can be if a player has played through a scenario before, if you're playing a campaign setting and someone has played it before, okay, there's going to be a trap here and then this door is locked, but we actually want the false wall over here, not the door. So I'm going to go search <laughs> for secret doors. And even when I fail... I'm going to insist that there's a door here. That meta you don't want. Thankfully, again, this is one of those things that I have never had the misfortune of being in a group with because my group has typically done a decent job with meta. Um, it is something that takes practice. It is something that takes work. And please have a conversation with your players before your campaign, either in your session zero or before your character design session, about what all you what you're all looking for from the game, so that you can establish a healthy meta prior to the game's beginning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just to touch briefly on on uh, that point, when designing a campaign and you have that session zero, one of the most important things you can do is to sit down and be like, "All right, so you guys are a group of X, and you're all trying to do this." And so all of you, when you're designing your characters, think about why you're there and give yourself motivation to be there. Because motivation. if you build a character yep. that doesn't want to be there, it's going to really anchor down the plot. And you, people are going to have to spend way too much time trying to convince you to even play the game in character. It's not fun. I once played a campaign a long time ago where somebody built a pirate. And their only wish was to steal a boat and go back out into the ocean, which had nothing to do with the plot whatsoever. So first time we went into town, killed the guard, guarding a boat, and sailed off into the ocean. And then he's like, all right, so now I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to go do this. And I'm like, you're out of the campaign, bye. There's no reason for the rest of the party to go into the ocean. Come great on. NPC, not such a great PC. <laughs> right? So motivation, and, huge. And on that note, I think that... You know, we've, we've talked a lot about group cohesion, and I think that the other side of that is your personal knowledge and understanding of the system, of the game, that kind of stuff. It's get to a point with your role-playing or tabletop career that you're comfortable 
doing things that out of character are illogic based on what your character has available to them or, or understands. Oh, yes. Things like, uh, again, talking about, I have memorized the monster manual. I know all of the stats of all the things. Uh, if you out of character know that a base blue dragon stats put it at 10 HP left, but your character internally, everything is screaming, run the fuck away, then like make the call. What would your character do rather than do you want the personal glory? Yeah, on, on, um, on that point, though, it's also especially important is that sometimes people who are really knowledgeable of, about the game, um, they can misinterpret someone doing that sure. as, hey, you should do this because this is the best way to win this battle. Yep. Or you should go and quickly do this because that's what would uh, get us some fat loot right now type of thing. And those comments that are out of character to tell someone else how to do the game can really sap the energy because basically it's like it's like whenever you play like a triple a title where for the first 10 minutes of the game they make you press a and then b and they're like now you should open the menu and i'll show you how to do this too it's kind of like bro i just want to play the game i bought this to play the game not so it not, not so it can tell me how to play the game right looking at you battlefield three story mode <laughs> okay. gentlemen after did you have something you wanted to add here or yeah something to, uh after that one thing about meta is uh, it's a balancing act, and so it's hard to say, you know, do everything right with it. Um, it's one of those things you have to kind of have to feel out as you go along, and when you're at the table, if something is not going the way you want it to, uh, and the people aren't playing uh, in a way that you think it should really be going, that's something you got to communicate about. Um, and each group, over time, kind of finds its sweet spot. Um, and that's going to be kind of different for everyone. Uh, so that's really something you want to be upfront about. And you want to have uh, constructive talks about it after the game. And figure uh, out a, a time and way over. to communicate that is productive. Yeah. yeah. You know? um, definitely encourage people that if uh, you liked how something was going, like you'd see the DM introduce something new to the way that they played the game and you liked it, or there was something about the way the dynamic was playing out that you didn't like, bring it up, say something, say, hey guys, I noticed that at this session, it's kind of weird this happened, and it would be really cool if we could just like focus, or if we could, um, you know, is there what, what is it about your character that makes you do this so I can understand your motivation and stuff like that. Because it's really important to me that... Because the way that I just interpreted on, on the, the brief interaction we had, it seemed kind of like this could be, you know, like I could potentially react badly to that. So I just want to, you know, put it out in the open and have a conversation. Have those post-game, you know, debriefings that puts everyone on the same page because don't let things fester. That's really important. Very so, true. Going back to a point you had made about... Um, the meta knowledge in character translating to um, kind of where it picked back off yours of making a poor decision because it's the character's it's the right thing for the character and the role play not necessarily for the mechanical best case um, the way that you can take some of that in character and this depends upon the party and the group you're playing with um, and this is something that our group has talked to me a lot about um, as Jazzy is saying, players like that really take the fun out of it. Um, I have a very strategic mindset. So when it comes to combat and minis on a board, I look at it and I see the tactical side of it. 
Um, and the way to approach communicating tactics to your other party members is in character. Oh, yeah. Have your character, if they have that mindset, if they know what's going on, have them shout um, direction and then let the other player characters riff off that. Mm -hmm. As long as your do character. Do not do it out of character. Keep it, if you can keep it in character and it fits with your character, that's, that's the important part right there. We're good. If, if it's not, maybe don't do that. Rob the Prairie Dog, thanks so much for the follow. We always appreciate it. Hey! hey! Welcome to the family. <laughs> Hella charismatic, that yeah. Rob. Hella charismatic. Yeah. Truth. Uh, I just wanted to touch on this one more time. Uh, we are a pretty experienced group uh, as far as playing with each other. Um, we've had more or less the same group for a number of years. and We've played together quite a bit, so we know each other's tendencies. And uh, we can pretty much... Uh, communicate with each other. Uh, it doesn't always go smoothly, but uh, <laughs> even uh, with that, uh, we have run into problems before when we uh, switched from playing Pathfinder to playing uh, Edge of the Empire. Uh, it uses a different dice system, um, multiple dice, and when you hash out your results, you can do different things with uh, the results that you get. And we ran into a situation where some people knew the game pretty well, even though we were just starting, and other people didn't. So when someone would roll their dice, suddenly you'd get a whole bunch of people talking, you should do this with it, you should do that with it, uh, you should crit, like, do this thing. <laughs> and uh, it's something that uh, kind of snuck up on us, and we had to have a conversation about it. I think we've gotten a lot uh, better about it, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things is as you go on, as you play the game, uh, sometimes you need to reevaluate and, and mm -hmm. talk about the things that are going on. Yeah, Edge of the Empire is a unique system where your dice roll can actually affect not just your combat, but actually the story itself. And sometimes having a group, like a very brief interaction about how you want the story to develop based on this role can be a really fun and enlightening thing because sometimes people have really good suggestions. But it's again that thing of like, sometimes people just want to play with what they built and what they want to play and, and what they, you know, characterize and be willing to step back and let them have that if that's what it, you can tell that's what they want. So. Right. Uh, I think we're good to jump into the next topic here. Mm -hmm. um, what is a very memorable moment in a game you've played uh, for better or worse? This is a super broad topic. Oh, so, man. Uh, we can get some interesting responses to this. Anyone got one coming to mind immediately? Yeah. Uh, jump in. For me, and this is, this is kind of a, a thing that gets referenced a lot. This is from his Exile campaign that we played for ages and ages and ages. Uh, we were seeking out information about this kind of secret society and we went into this mage tower that happens to have uh it's yeah i know <laughs> it, again it, it's it's the first and foremost one uh that happens to have had uh you know a bunch of members of this secret society and so we're we're thinking we're all hot shit and going in to get a bunch of information and we walk in and everybody's dead Everybody's dead on a very grand scale. There's like this giant runic uh, circle that is patterned on the floor in the entrails and gore. It is just like, what is happening? And we've got this magical staff that is an artifact that is designed to carry these orbs that are basically uh, orbs of elemental power. Um, they are like a physical manifestation of the elements 
uh, on that plane. And so our grand quest is to gather all of these orbs and do with them as, as we're supposed to. Uh, and our mage, who's Mike, who's not here today, um, gets the grand idea of just walks in and like spikes the end of the staff into the center where it looks like there's a there's a circle about this big and spikes it into the center of it and immediately activates this entire like giant runic ritual uh and uh yeah do you want to yeah so they freed an entire race of people that had been imprisoned uh well under the earth that uh, thankfully never came back uh, to bite them completely <laughs> uh, because they never went down the right places to run into those folks. Um, Quite literally. But yeah, that was our staff in the center. I put the moment. staff in the center. I put was the, the staff in the, the center. That what became... said. And it has become iconic for I have a really dumb idea and I'm about to do it <laughs> for our group. Um, Here's the deal. If you dangle no. something in front of my face and I don't know what it is, I'm going to poke it with a stick. To <laughs> and that is literally what they did. So Keys, Keys was also in that campaign and he's, he's mentioning the, the continuation of the I ridiculous stuff that happened. So... I'm going to go ahead and pick up from where he left off. I had forgotten about that. Holy shit. There's this huge apparition that appears that starts speaking to the party in like basically foreboding overtones and is trying to get them to have him, have them help him collect these objects instead. Um, And our cleric, uh, Keys, first cast Detect Evil, um, to which he gets for me. The entire room is overwhelmingly evil, and you're unconscious. And unconscious. <laughs> um, he he comes back up from being unconscious a few rounds later, and rather than you know maybe I should leave this thing alone, I cast detect thoughts on the apparition. I was <laughs> like, you are overwhelmed with magical energy, and you're unconscious. <laughs> um, oh it was, man! It was a, a great display. In, of human uh, ingenuity. Uh, of, I, I was going to go a different route <laughs> because up, to that, up until that point, I think that that party oh. had basically crushed or rolled over every major opposition that had come in front of them. Well, we had survived. Uh, they, they had managed to defeat everything else that had come in front of them or outwitted it or gotten information from people that they didn't think they were going to get information from. So this is a party that, eh, maybe not as much information as you wanted. There you go. But you got information from people that you probably weren't going to. Uh, that was a shortfall of mine as a DM for a while. It didn't I had unhelpful NPCs for a long, long time. It's, it's a running gag. Um, but the... Uh, the seeing that party run through that and watching them, okay, well, it's this giant magic circle. It can't hurt. And then... And then it hurt. And then detect evil and the detect thoughts. It was a, okay, well, we've managed to overcome everything else. We can overcome this. When what I'm doing as a DM here is I'm putting on display, hey, there's stuff that you just can't right now. This 
might be one of them. <laughs> you should probably just fucking not. Maybe don't. Just not. Maybe <laughs> um, don't. But yeah, no. I was I was actually going to go with the exact same moment. The staff in the center yeah. uh, probably is one of the more iconic um, and memorable moments in D and D that I've been around. Uh, that's another good one, Keys. I'm, I'm not going to go into that one, but it's another good moment. Uh, I'll pass down to either of y'all. Did you have one you wanted to... Uh... I could jump in while you think. Yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm having trouble thinking. Uh, Mike ran a campaign in uh, the Star Wars system, and we were bounty hunters. In fact, some of the characters from that campaign are uh, on display in uh, Paul's Hunt for the Ripper campaign. Uh, as NPCs now, uh, but I'm not an NPC. you are unconscious. You are a brunchable. Uh, yeah, so you're as much an NPC as anything. Uh, I guess you're as much as an NPC as the table you're laying on. <laughs> so uh, my Man. character, we, God we, damn. Were, we were mercenaries, and uh, my character was a cold-blooded thug, basically, and uh, was the brains of the outfit, uh, mechanic and uh, computer specialist, and was rather dour about everything, had kind of a sour (laughs) opinion of uh, all goings-on. Paul was playing a character with a great deal of enthusiasm uh, for the adventure, (laughs) and uh, it's not really one moment, but more of a a theme that went on throughout the campaign, where uh, we would be presented with something, and I would be upset about it, and Paul would be thrilled about it. (laughs) And it actually got to the point where we would... uh, have the exact same sentence as a reaction to something, but just in different tones. <laughs> so it'd be like, uh, your quest is to uh, go into this mine and steal something and fight your way out. I'm like, we're going to have to fight our way out of a mine? And <laughs> and Zeke goes, we're going to have to fight our way out of a mine! <laughs> and it was constant. We were perfectly in sync in the opposite direction. Just a ton of fun. Yeah, in that campaign, uh, I guess I really enjoyed the dynamic that Zeke had with his cast because um, he was the he was a uh, a Makashi uh, Jedi um, and uh, he was a cat folk. Basically, it's called a far ghoul, but cat folk is probably what most people recognize. And he really uh, he treasured things. He treasured people. He treasured experiences. He treasured like the moment and. Kind of, kind of going off of uh, his interactions with um, Soren. Hmm? Soren was her name, yeah. Um, Soren. Uh, Soren Gelasto. He was an incredibly technical mind. He was very much like, I'm going to do the thing because it has a purpose. And uh, and and Zeke just treasured his intellect and was like, so you can build a lightsaber, right? And he's like, yes. And he's like, you can build a great lightsaber, right? And he's like. <laughs> Yes, of course I can. Can you make it like this? And he's like, yes. Yes, I can do that. And he's like, this is so cool. And then the other one can was... Can you make it purple? <laughs> sure. Can you make it curved? Can you implement Why this, not? this rancor leather that I took from one thing and this God. super dense metal I took from this other thing? Yes, see, I can do that too. And he's just like, yes! <laughs> and the other thing too is in that party, we also had um, a uh, actual HK droid <laughs> from the Old Republic, uh, played by the guy who's not on the camera right now. And Zeke had, you know, a passing knowledge of what that really meant. But once HK explained what he was and what his, how long he's been around and all that stuff, he was like, 
oh my god, we have a we have an HK droid. This is fucking fantastic. And he would like polish him and like everywhere he would go where he was like going to be in the center of attention, he would like drag the HK droid with him to be like, hey everybody, look what we got. We got an HK droid. And, and he's my friend. Yes. <laughs> and pull him out and put him on display and then just stand next to him like, yes. It's a great dynamic. That was a great group. With... To make his comment, with one exception, that is usually Paul. The exception to that is when it was Dylan, and it was six a.m. <laughs> <laughs> During our extra life twenty-five Small hour track. stream, uh, I played a character in our final one shot uh, that ran from six a.m. to noon, <laughs> this, this where we were already completely toasted, and uh, uh, his name was Chadley. And he had a very positive outlook. Oh my god! In fact, he was thrilled positive. about everything and saw a silver lining in every single thing. So while we were dead tired and completely exhausted, and, and sometimes our... a little short, <laughs> yeah, sometimes uh, our ship would crash. And he'd say, "I know this situation looks bad, but hey, we survived a plane crash. That that just speaks so well to our durability." And, and I thought Nick was going to stab me at the end of it. <laughs> He didn't stop playing the character after the camera turned off. He had one last positive outburst about how my character had died. And I was like, you're gonna die. There was a point where someone had been shot by a lot of blaster bolts. And he's like, hey, I know you got shot a lot. But that just speaks to how much of a threat they fight. Literally everything. It was so fantastic. I couldn't. I, I died every time. So that's what I threatened them with. Is if they're not good, I'll bring Chadley back. Do it. Do it. Oh, we'll kill him. So oh, I wanted we'll to kill him. Move on to a. Uh, for one thing, uh, Pirate Chazzy, thanks for the follow. Hey. We didn't get to it uh, when you followed, but we appreciate it. Don't think welcome, we didn't. Welcome. Uh, see ya. Oh, we saw you. Uh, Rob the Prairie Dog uh, said, any tips on how to keep a group of guys who don't appreciate the work that goes into DM uh, DMing committed to playing it through? Ooh. Uh, this is Ooh. A tough one. This yeah, is a, this really is tough, a tough one. one. I think, be, I, I, I a think super he... pointed question that I want to phrase, that I want to kind of lead with. A pointed question you want Super to... pointed counter question. And I'm going to preface it that way because it absolutely is. Do you really want to DM for them? Because if they don't appreciate what you're doing behind the screen... Do you really want to be putting in that type of work behind the screen? And it's, I, I, I prefaced it as super pointed because it absolutely is. Uh, with some groups of folks, um, they will appreciate what you're doing. And some groups of folks won't. And ultimately, if you're having fun with that group, regardless of how they feel about what you do away from the session to make the session fun, if you're enjoying it, keep doing it. And find ways to engage with them. But if you're not enjoying it, and the way that they behave around what you have to do to prep for the session just makes it worse or is why you're not enjoying it, maybe either have a conversation with them or don't. I, I think the... It, it should absolutely be discussed. You should absolutely be able to sit down with that group and say, hey, when you guys do these things, it makes me not enjoy the session because I've put in time and I've put in effort and I've put in energy to creating this world and creating these NPCs mm -hmm. and creating this environment for you to have fun in and this this plot for us to weave a story around. 
<clears throat> and you know sometimes um it, you you might need to remove yourself from it if it is to the point where you are not enjoying it because that's the whole point I have I have a um, I don't disagree, but I have sort of a, a counterpoint that doesn't actually counter your point, but is on the opposite end of the spectrum. There, yes, I think one of the things to really look at in a situation like what you're experiencing. Um, uh, sorry, what is this? Pirate, pirate, where, where, where's the, pirate Jazzy? Pirate Jazzy, yes, Pirate Jazzy. Um, pirate Jazzy, one of the things that really look at is that you mentioned that they don't appreciate. I would look at exactly what the problems are and sort of establish the things that everyone could improve upon. For example, one of the things that we are constantly working on is crosstalk. We're always, you know, very social people. We always have jokes on the tip of our tongues that we want to share. Um, but we've talked about it, and it's like, hey, guys, we're here to play. We want to focus. We want to be productive and things like that. And what we did is we identified something that we could work on, and we had a, we had a civil adult conversation about it, and, and we're all working on that. Um, go through, look at the things that perhaps you're finding unsatisfying about your experience in DMing these people, and set a expectation and say, I really want everyone to be in character as often as possible. I really want to, you guys to um, sort of act like the world is an actual world that you're participating in and not you going around burning peasants because you think it's fun. Like, like play this character as if you were playing a character out of a book or a story or a movie or things like that. Um, and, and this is my expectations for when I DM this game or I GM this game. Do you guys find that satisfying? Can you can you follow through on that? Can you can you commit to this? Because that's what I'm that's what I'm going to be DMing to. If you don't want to do that, you know you don't have to play. And what you do is you take control of that situation and you set up what is reasonable and what you believe that your session is going to be characterized by. And uh, if nobody wants to do that, if nobody likes it. They can go find something else to do. You don't have to kick them out. You can give them the choice. This is my expectations or the door. I think go ahead. I think that it's really important for you to address it. Um, it nothing changes until you do something about it. Um, and sometimes it's difficult if you have a group of people who you know really well and who you're friends with and who you interact with on a regular basis to set boundaries uh, for them. But if you are not having fun, as has been mentioned before, it's not going to work. Uh, at the very least, your content will suffer. Uh, and a DMing, playing D&D is not a service. Uh, unless you're getting paid for it. Um, and even then... Uh, it's important that you enjoy it as much as anyone. Um, and the easiest way to do that, in my opinion, is to set expectations and communicate uh, early and often. So if you're not having fun with the campaign and you feel like uh, they don't appreciate the work that you're putting in, uh, you should communicate that feeling to them. And it's important that when you do that, you communicate your own feelings about it rather than saying things like uh you don't appreciate me enough or Agreed. you're doing things wrong mm -hmm. I statements. Um, yep. yes i not you i yep. statements indeed uh always especially when you're having any kind of difficult criticizing discussions 
it's really important to always keep in mind what your goal is yeah. uh, and keep in mind that you're aiming for the solution and it's really easy to get bogged down in the problem. Yes. Um, in addition to that, I would say that it, while it's difficult, if you aren't having fun and you've had the conversation and it's not working well, you may not want to play. Um, and I have been in that situation before where I've had issues and I felt like, you know, I really just don't want to do this anymore. And a lot of times when you're in that situation, once you actually express it, the uh, people around you kind of have a, uh, like, oh my God moment. Like, they didn't realize that it was an issue. They didn't realize that it was a problem. Um, so I think that that's really the first step. Mm-hmm. I think that it's, as, as has been said, it's a really crucial conversation to have. Uh, but I think that the way that you approach it also needs to be very careful. Uh, because it's really easy to come off as complaining, which immediately shuts out anybody else's investment. Or it's really easy to come off as an attack, which also shuts off people's willingness to have a conversation. The goal is to have a productive conversation. Yeah. And... They're all friends. When, presumably, you, presumably, you know, it's... You know. it's it's I, I, it's hard for me to imagine playing D anD D with people who I don't have some cursory attachment. To yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think that it's it's incredibly important to make sure that if you don't feel appreciated as a DM, as somebody who has invested tens or hundreds or thousands, however many, however much time into it, uh, one uh, education is the bane of ignorance. They may or may not have any idea how much work you actually put into it behind the screen. Mm -hmm. I know that the first few games that I played, I was a player. And they ran very well. And I had no idea. Absolutely. As far as I was concerned, I sat down with my buddies once a week. And we had five hours of, of fun. We drank soda, ate pizza, had fun. And then we all went our separate ways. Uh, that's not how it works. You know, it's, it's like event planning. A lot of people don't realize what kind of chaos goes into planning something as small as like a, a small family gathering or party, let alone something like a convention or something like that. And uh, I think that tabletop games, orchestrating a, an effective tabletop game is a lot more complex than a lot of people realize. Mm-hmm. So starting out by making sure that uh, everybody gets that, and you can do that either by saying, hey... Would you guys like to, you know, help with some of the creation, have one player DM a session, have another player DM a session, and just kind of do a round of rotation, or... One shots. One shots, or, you know, find find a way to get people involved in the other side of it, so that not only is there the knowledge and understanding of it, but there's the experience and personal investment of, I've seen what it's like... To have something go well or poorly or, you know, it just, it gives people a different perspective that they may or may not have. Um, So while it is very, very important to, you know, have the conversation and it may get to a point where it's either uh, do or don't, you know, you may walk away or send players away or whatever. uh, I think that there's a lot to be done before it gets to that point. I think that should be the absolute last resort. So I want to touch base on some of the things. So we've all said things that you should be doing in order to try and remedy the issue. 
um, have the conversation, things like that. Um, I want to touch on a couple more specific ways that you can try and address things here. Um, this is not an ambush topic. This is a, hey guys, I'd like to sit down with you tomorrow or next week or after our next session and you tell them that session after our next session i'd like yep. to sit down and have a conversation with you guys um the exile campaign um in its last leg when we were running it um had a couple of we'd go five or six sessions and then we would have a meeting as players uh state of the game basically where's everybody at What's going well? What's not going well? And a lot of that was that I was struggling with some things behind this behind the screen that I knew I wasn't getting buy-in from my players, and I knew that I wasn't putting out content that, that some of them were enjoying, and I wanted to make sure that I had as many people on board as I could. Now, that party was really big. I had a lot of players in that campaign. Um, when that campaign first started, we had 13. When it um, actually ended, I think we had five. Something um, like that, yeah. And it fluctuated periodically throughout Survival the time. of the fittest. <laughs> throughout the most this time. tolerant, at least. Yes. <laughs> Survival of the most tolerant. That's a part of evolution. <laughs> uh, Not wrong. So that, that's one of the things. Um, the, the point that Dylan brought up with talking about how you feel, um, you don't want to say, hey, you do this. You want to say, I feel unappreciated as a DM when I see this. Mm-hmm. And make sure that it, Those, both sides of that statement are I, not yeah. when you do this. Right. Avoid it, that section of the, the when, sentence. When I see this going on, I, I feel. feel. Because what you're doing is you're putting something out there that is not attacking and that they can't dispute. Because they can't say, oh, you don't feel that way. Yeah. They can't do that. And if they do that... There's I, I other issues. What, I don't know what to do with that person that says, "Oh, you don't feel that way." I don't. I don't know what to do with that. We, we don't. We can't. We can't even touch that. I, I, that's we're what's not going to go. Red flag. Yeah. <laughs> red flag. But that's that's the way you want to make sure you approach this topic with any type of out of character yeah. conversation about yeah. how the game wants to go, or if you're having an issue with the game. Or to be fair, this is more. You can apply this to anything in life. Or yeah, this is issue life skills. Yeah, this like this is conflict resolution. Super yeah. important conflict resolution and interpersonal communication skills. There's a book called Crucial Conversations that's really good. It is. It Side is note. Really good. Um, but Charisma that, Reading Club. <laughs> that's the Might type of thing. conversation you want to make sure you have. Something where everyone there is aware of what the topic is going to be when you go in. So that they've had time to think. They're not knee-jerk reacting to comments they're not knee-jerk reacting to statements they have had time to think about okay well i didn't know that that was a problem or oh yeah well of course i don't care um but they haven't heard what you've had to say yet but their initial reaction to being told hey i might not be having as much fun and this is the topic that i want to talk to you guys about is gone They, they don't have that initial reaction they've had time to absorb that and prepare for the conversation because maybe there's something else happening there that, that you're not aware of. If I hadn't been having state of the game conversations with my party, yep. I wouldn't have known where some of the players' yep. disconnects were. I would have known. I would have just thought that they, they weren't having fun and so they were being distracting at my table. Well, and it's both players to DM and players to players. Uh, you know, conflict within a party, both in and out of character, is really important to address. Because that can be a, a very slippery slope that if it's not addressed, like any other interpersonal issue, 
Uh, it can just fester and get worse and worse until it blows up. And then, you know, it's something that may have been very, very fixable if caught early. Yeah. Address it as soon as you start having a problem. Yeah. When it comes to D&D, when you have the first instance where you are not having fun, that is when you want to take a look at it and say, is this something I need to talk about right now? Or is this something that I need to give another session and then talk about? But if you stop having fun with this game... It is vital to your enjoyment of it that you have a conversation with the other people in the game to, to fix that. All right. Uh, it's getting a little uh, Dr. Philly in here. So we're going <laughs> to uh, uh, Warped Elf, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, asked, do you think an underwater campaign would work well? Yes. Yes. Uh, and that sounds uh, really great. That sounds so I, I especially that. I especially like the idea of having people who are obviously optimized for being underwater, say a merfolk or Man, who or plays a Naga. Folks yeah, exactly. <laughs> like being able to play those things that no one gets to do. The druid with the druid. a shark oh, companion, yes. or can shape shift into underwater animals or things like that. Like that, first of all already sounds golden to me and then being able to build someone who is not optimized for underwater yep. combat because the how great would it be if you're just some run-of-the-mill guy in full plate who can breathe underwater and ring just, water breathing. <laughs> and just trudges along the bottom of the ocean like okay guys hold on <laughs> i don't do that boo it's like, it's that like buoyancy dude, thing get that guy a giant seahorse and <laughs> Let's keep going. Like, yeah. the, just the... I'm already laughing at the ideas that, that could be a part of that. Plus the idea of, like, your dungeon encounter is a giant Spanish galleon that oh, has that would sunk be so cool. years ago and is rumored to have ancient treasure inside of it. And it's just decks. And that's, like, your dungeon slash castle is, like, oh, this, that would be so good. this underwater freaking fortress. Oh, man, yeah. it's so cool. I love the idea. I love that idea for uh, a dungeon being just like a huge, like, um, what is that, three deck yep. uh, galleon. Yep. Mm-hmm. Plus the uh, above deck stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and on the, the thing that I would, I wouldn't say caution because this sounds like if you, if you plan this out, this could be a, just a shitload of fun. The, the thing that I'm going to tell you to prepare for is three dimensional combat. Because underwater mm. means up and down are now a thing. Mm-hmm. Just ha- be prepped for it. Yep. Be ready for it. Know mm-hmm. how three-dimensional combat works because up and down movement is weird. And it's important to have at least one person at the table that has a complete grasp on it. Read up about it. Learn it. Do it. And make I sure... also... Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I was just going to point on that. An underwater campaign might be a wonderful example to kind of switch gears into a theater of the mind style campaign where yeah. sometimes the square footage is important, but sometimes when you're having an underwater battle, you just kind of, I mean, like you can, you can have a, I'm not saying don't have elevation in the point <laughs> of it, but it might also be fun just to be like, Hey, we're not on a two dimensional plane anymore. Like we're not walking through the decks. We're, we're in, in ocean. And so you kind of take the, the ups and downs as more of an abstract thing. That is not saying which one is better, but those are just options and different things to think about. That was actually going to be my point, was addressing that, is understand uh, some parties, some groups, and some DMs deal better with mechanically heavy stuff. Some deal better with description and theatrics better. Know where you stand and where your group stands as to whether or not they want something that is like questions like, uh, how is buoyancy calculated? 
if I'm in X encumbrance, what does that do to me floating or sinking every round? <laughs> Those types of questions will come up mm-hmm. in a lot of groups. And decide early on or before you start if you want to deal with that stuff. If not, then say, don't worry about it. If it's obscene, it'll be an issue. But if it's not, then we're not going to factor it. Mm-hmm. You know, the the <clears throat> fact that it's a game, not a simulation, is something that really can play to your favor for the enjoyment of the group. A, a quick little anecdote about kind of what you were saying yeah. is that Lyle in The Awakening um, wears full plate. He's a paladin. He, he has a pair of swords on him, stuff like that. So the idea of whether he literally sinks or swims when he gets in the water is potentially a point of, of contention. Um, but he has a cloak of uh, the manta ray, the I think is what it's ray. called, mm-hmm. which gives you a 60-foot swim speed and lets you breathe underwater and stuff like that. That's now, we could... So cool. si- oh, God, it was so much fun. We went across... Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That item is so freaking fun. Um, but we were swimming across an open channel while the rest of the group uh, cardamoraned their way across it uh, over a bay. And the question <laughs> came up briefly about whether or not Lyle in full plate still has a 60-foot swim speed and the item just says you have it, and then the question could arise, well, would you sink down? Would you struggle for it? And at that point, it's like, what does that bring to the story? Like, how much does does the party enjoy the, the conversation of encumbrance underwater? Does the player, does the DM want to get into that? That's where theater of the mind and just saying have fun with it really yep. comes into play because unless you have party members who will regularly abuse wording, there's no reason why you can't just let someone have fun swimming, you know? And that's yeah. uh, also kind Agreed. of an artifact of uh, Pathfinder that we, um, you know, we play Pathfinder and we play 5e. And in Pathfinder, there's uh, not only encumbrance penalties, but also armor check penalties for things like that. And it affects your movement and everything. Mm-hmm. So that was something that hung us up a little bit uh, when we got to... What happens when you're underwater with armor in 5e? Uh, what happens yeah. when you sleep with your armor on? You know, like, right. those questions both, come up, you know? So, these were both questions that I brought up, because to me, um, and a lot of my enjoyment of the game, is the rules. Um, so I wasn't going to say it, but yeah. No, no. <laughs> One of the things that I find enjoyment in, in a D&D session, or a board game, or a video game, are the rules of engagement. What are the rules of this game? And then adherence to those rules is part of my enjoyment to it. How can I succeed within the parameters of the game? Uh, that's something that's important to me when I play a game. And it's something that is very different from a lot of my fellow players. Um, so I think that uh, uh, to me, a campaign underwater to run it sounds like hell. Because I'm the person who's going, okay, so they have 15 feet of movement. If they move straight up, they only have seven and a half, so they can only move. That's what I'm doing. Um, in, a, in a pure RP, theater of the mind, throw the mechanics out the window kind of thing for movement. For movement. Not for everything. Just for movement. Out the window. About as close as, you know what I mean. Yeah. Hyperbole. Yes. Hyperbole. I know. I know. I'm I'm there with you. (laughs) Um, In that type of environment, I could see it being a lot of fun. You just don't get to play with underwater stuff very often. No, that is something I actually uh, wanted to comment about. It opens up a whole new Mm -hmm. world of possibilities for encounters. (laughs) We're not going to do this. (laughs) All right. uh, A whole new. 
different kinds of encounters that you would normally never see. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all gone into the woods carrying something for someone else so elsewhere and, and been attacked by bandits. Rustling in the but, bushes. But uh, to be attacked by a squid underwater or some kind of weird deep sea toothy fish. A hermit that sounds that uses awesome. a, a cart to, as a backpack. You have, to go down into this, uh, you have to go down to this cave and uh, you see that torch in the distance. That's kind of weird. Oh wait, that's an anglerfish. <laughs> <laughs> by yeah. the way, the end of the cave that you're going into has limited oxygen. Have fun. The, the Have thematics fun. that you can do of like you're going along the ocean bottom because that's what's most comfortable for you or whatever. Like again, you're, you're you're trudging along that bottom of the ocean, and suddenly the sun, which normally comes through the crystal clear water, is obscured in darkness. And you're like, is that a cloud passing overhead, or is it a dire shark? You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, you get you could play with just so much more um, uh, theatrics that you can't do. Uh, well, you could do it. It could be a dragon. Or something like that, of course, but you don't get to just do that kind of stuff, sure. yeah. Um, and go ham, have fun with that, yeah. Sounds like we're all on board, man. Mm-hmm. It's, it sounds like a great idea. Uh, we had a question here from Pirate Jazzy uh, What is your ideal campaign? Do you have one or not playing cool. it currently? I know this right off the top of my head, so if you guys don't mind, go uh, for it. A campaign Jump that I'd in. really like to play at some point is sort of, um. I say long-term loosely, which means it's not just a one-shot and it's not just like something you, you quickly get from point A to point D and you're done with the story. I'd like to play something that revolves around having a base, like uh, a ship or uh, an abandoned mm. fortress or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's exploration-based where you don't have a map, you don't know where you are, and all you can do is basically head in a direction or head towards where you think your your goal is in the distance, and you come across things like, you come across a cave opening, and it's like, well, where we're going isn't in the cave, but you're like, but there's a cave. <laughs> so if we could go check it out, right? Like, that's not a problem. Right? Write we that do down, that. we'll come back. And, and when, <laughs> yeah, we'll mark it on the map as a, as a point for later exploration, or... Um, like having, let's say, a fort. Let's just go with a fort. Um, so you go out and you attack a goblin camp. And one of the things that the goblins have is a salvaged arbalest or something like that. And you defeat the goblins and you you, you pack everything up and you're like, hmm, you know what would be really great for a fort? A salvaged arbalest up on the walls. <laughs> How cool would that be? You know? And you, you, you take the time to load it up on your cart and you take it back with you. And now... On your fortifications is something that you salvage. So having this idea of exploration and salvage and building something that's yours and and having to play off of play off of uh, your your scenery is what you've built and your resources are what you've collected and given to yourself. And I could probably play that in like a fifth edition or I could play that in uh, Star Wars: Edge of the Empire, yeah, where we, we steal a ship or a shuttle, so we take it back to that abandoned space station we once uh, stuck our flag in, and uh, now we have a shuttle, uh, an Imperial Lambda-class shuttle that we can use for our shenanigans at some point. That totally know? can't be tracked, because that would suck. Because we, have an engineer, <laughs> because we have an engineer on our group who can do that kind of thing, and just like, that would be perfect for me. Uh, for my part... I love the ragtag gang of misfits that each has a special skill uh, going on an adventure. Uh, I love that in all kinds of media, <laughs> books, movies, TV shows, that's my jam. Anime, I don't care. It, I love it. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, 
Magnificent Seven, uh, to jump back, or uh, Seven Samurai, however you want to phrase it. Uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, I'd hope for a little bit more. A little uh, bit more competency. Yeah. Uh, but I-, I love when all of the characters have uh, w- a couple of things that they're really good at and a few things that they're really bad at, and they kind of separately, they're misfits and they're outcasts from society, but together they cover each other's weaknesses mm-hmm. and uh, their strengths are syn- synergistic. And you can have like lighthearted moments and you can have nervy moments and you can have sad moments and everything mm-hmm. and just kind of go on a rollicking adventure. Play um, off of each other's dynamics. That's, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I really like. For... Mine, I was, this was probably, I don't know, six or eight years ago, I started designing a campaign, and at some point I'd like to go through and flesh it out, uh, but that was based around a traveling circus that was kind of a gypsy-style family unit um, that was actually also a traveling band of uh, assassins, mercenaries, that kind of stuff, so they were always on the move, always getting into whatever trouble or mischief they got into, uh, but make it kind of a mission-based that uh, story that has this kind of overarching, while all of the individual characters are going to have their, their wants, their needs, their hopes, their dreams, their motivations, at the end of the day, the fact that it's for the good of the family is kind of the driving motivation. Mm-hmm. So they end up having to to be put into situations where their personal motivation and the good of the family are directly opposing each other. And I think that it's something that could really see a lot of phenomenal role play, but also I think that it's something that can push a lot of people outside of their role-playing comfort zone Mm -hmm. and would push a lot of the players to grow a lot in that interaction. I'd like to think that uh, in Hunt for the Ripper, we kind of yeah. have we kind of have a little bit of that, where um, we're a mercenary group who takes contracts together and do and does jobs together, and we kind of also have that sort of ragtag group of people mm-hmm. and stuff like yeah. that. And sometimes a conversation comes up where a mission is, you know, is this good for yep. our group to to yep. go on this mission or to take on this responsibility or to ally ourselves with with this or to take this person's word over this person's word and sometimes that conversation of like well our group brand yep. is really yeah. important to us and we need to decide what's what's worth losing and what's worth maintaining absolutely yeah. absolutely and also getting the the flavor of the circus performers getting to see the archetypal fighter as the strong man, the dex rogue as a juggler, or you know whatever. Uh, I really like that idea. The ringmaster as the charisma-based party face kind of thing. Um, something that ties them back to the uh, the performance. That it, it brings them back to this kind of thing that gives everybody a reason for going wherever things go. Oh my gosh, Taz the magician. There you go. Settle down. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to jump in there, Nick? Oh, I, I don't know. What about a campaign where you open up Monopoly and you just read the rules? <laughs> Listen here, you. Fun fact, in Monopoly, did you know that you're supposed to start the game by setting a number of turns that you're playing? It's not usually until somebody wins. Also, the auction rule is not optional. 
We're going Somebody off the rails knows. here a little bit. We're going <laughs> to shut this one down. Thank you all for joining us. We had a great time. We appreciate all of your questions, your comments, your topics that you've given us. Uh, watch out for this show again. We're going to try and do it more often. Uh, and tune in tomorrow. We have uh, The Awakening. The Awakening. Uh, it's going to be at 5.30 Pacific. That's PM, naturally. Uh, so please join us. Mm-hmm. Uh, next time we do this, we, we would love to have some of your questions like you've given us today. Uh, we're all about interacting with you and, and getting your jollies off as much as ours. So, oh. <laughs> Join us on social media and uh, Twitter at Dumpstatia, on Instagram at Dumpstat Charisma. Check out Bjorn Stream. He does amazing things with leatherwork. It's a sight to behold. Thank you all for joining us. See you later. <laughs>